You ever watch any uh, spy movies where two spies will uh, meet up for the very first time? And, of course, neither one knows who the other one is. They don't carry a picture of the other one coming. And so they, maybe they meet on a park bench, and they sit down. And one of them says something in code to which the other one responds in his code. And they know the code. And so one of them will say something like, the, the Queen of England has 11 toes. And the other one will say something silly like, that's more than she needs, I suppose. And so they know that each one is a spy, a very clandestine kind of meeting. Well, uh, Jesus gives his disciples a clandestine mission in Mark chapter 14. And so in Mark chapter 14, verse 12, is where we'll begin today. And the hours are slowly ticking toward that final time when Jesus will be with his disciples. He is um, ready in his own heart to be crucified for the sins of mankind. And yet his disciples aren't quite ready. He tells them in Mark chapter 14, verse 12, it's, the Bible says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? They ask this question of Jesus because Jesus and the disciples are just outside the city limits. And if at all possible, when you have the Passover meal, you're supposed to have it within the city limits of Jerusalem, within the city walls. That's one of the little rules that they had. And so uh, the disciples want to know, where do you want to have the Passover meal? Is it going to be outside the city? Do you want it inside the city? If, if it's inside the city, where are we to go? And so we'll prepare this meal uh, for all of us to have together. And so they set up this place, this preparation for this final feast that they're going to have together. In verse 13 we read, And he sent two of his disciples, and these are the instructions, He said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a, water, a, a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. A couple of things I just want to point out at this, this clandestine meeting that these two disciples will have. First of all, they are to go into the city of Jerusalem by themselves. And uh, they are to meet a man carrying a jug of water. In fact, Scripture actually says, verse 13 actually says, that the man will meet them. Which gives us an understanding that the man is in on the plan. The man will approach them, the man will meet them. And Jesus says, I want you to follow him to a house. Now, why was it that Jesus set it up that the man would meet them instead of them meeting a man carrying a jug of water? Well, they might meet the wrong guy. You know, there might be dozens of men walking around carrying jugs of water. And so it had to be a very specific man, obviously. And so the man was to approach them. They were to follow him. And uh, Jesus essentially says in verse 14, the man that you're going to meet, he's not the real man that you want to meet. It's, you want to meet the master of that man. But follow this servant into the house and ask about the master. Wherever he enters, verse 14 says, Say to the master of the house, The teacher says, 
Where is my guest room that I may eat Passover with my disciples? Jesus doesn't even want them mentioning his name. Don't call me Jesus, call me the teacher. Keep it very much on the down low. Very hidden, very clandestine. But say to the master where the teacher says, I need my room. And Jesus says, he will show you a large upper room. Perfectly ready to go. I want you to prepare the Passover meal there. Now, first of all, why all of the secrecy? Why all the clandestine operation? Well, by this time in Jesus' ministry, he had already really hacked off the temple officials. He had made them extremely upset. And they wanted to kill him. But there were a few things that Jesus had to do first before he was to die. And one of them, he had to institute what we call the Lord's Supper. Jesus was not going to allow these things to be short-circuited by the anger of the temple officials. And so Jesus did not need to be arrested until the proper time. Until then, we're going to keep things very secret, very clandestine. And so the question is, when Jesus is telling all of these things about the man carrying the jug of water and going into the master's house and the master having a large upper room for us, was Jesus, did, was Jesus simply exercising prophetic insight? Did he simply just know the future? No, this is, hey, this is what's going to happen to you. Or the other option is, did Jesus set all this up beforehand? I have a tendency to believe that Jesus set all this up beforehand, and I'll tell you why. Because there's nothing in the story that we'll read where the disciples were somehow amazed that everything came to pass as Jesus said it would. You know, in other places, previously, when Jesus did something miraculous, when he had knowledge that he shouldn't have had knowledge, uh, and a normal human would not have knowledge of this kind of thing, the disciples were amazed. What kind of man is this that walks on the water? What kind of man is this that feeds the 5,000? What kind of man is it who tells me that I was sitting under a tree and, uh, and I knew that my brothers would come and tell me about Jesus? What kind of man is this? But there's nothing of that here. And it tells me, it indicates to me that I believe that Jesus had set all of this up with his, he had some other followers there in the city of Jerusalem, and he was ready. And if that's true, if that is true, that Jesus set this up for this particular day, to have this particular Passover meal, then it tells us that Jesus knew that his arrest and his crucifixion those events were imminent, and it tells us something else. He planned for it that way. He made plans to be in the right place at the right time. Jesus was walking straight toward his death on the cross without hesitation, without fear. Let me ask you a question. If someone, and it's going to sound silly, but if someone said to you, on such and such a day this week, an elephant is going to fall on you and kill you. I can probably guess that you're going to stay away from the zoo that day. You're going to stay away from the circus that day. You may stay at home. You may be in a closet where you don't think elephants will fall on you. But whatever it is, you're going to do everything you can to avoid your death, not Jesus. He knew that they were after him. And Jesus doesn't run away back to Nazareth. 
He doesn't run off to the east or the south or the north or the west. He walks right into the lion's den. And he knows that he's about to be arrested. But there's a few things that he has to do first. And I believe that he set all of this up for this particular day, knowing the very day of his arrest. You see, Jesus spoke and acted and moved in such a way as to always affirm his Father's plan for him to die on the cross. What an incredible faith Jesus had in his heavenly Father's plan. Everything Jesus did was to obey the Father. Jesus did not hesitate, but he made plans even to go right into Jerusalem to die on a cross for us. And so now we have the final feast, beginning in verse 17. Well, actually, verse 16, we, we read the disciples set out, and they went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So everything came to pass, just as, as Jesus said. Verse 17, and when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. According to Mark's presentation of this story, the very first thing that Jesus says is, as they're having this Passover meal, one of you will betray me. Well, that's a mood changer. That's a game changer. Everything, the whole dynamic in the room is different at that point. Verse 19, And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? I want you to think about their response. Their reaction. Not one of them said to Jesus, how can I help? Not one of them said to Jesus, I'm concerned about your suffering. Not one of them said to Jesus, I'm not going to let this happen. Every last one of them we're concerned about themselves. Is it me? Whew, it's not me. Well, at least it's not me. Jesus, yeah, you may be arrested. You may be crucified. At least it's not my fault. Already in their hearts, the 11 that would not betray Jesus, they're already distancing themselves from the Lord. They're already in their hearts abandoning Him. In this room, by Jesus making this comment, that one of you will betray me. He is all alone in this room with his closest friends. It is him on one side and the twelve on the other. Look at the language. The disciples began to be sorrowful and they said to him one after another, Is it I? It has become a case of Jesus and the rest all alone. It's how Jesus obviously feels at this point. Jesus is very alone. In Psalm 23, one of the great psalms of our faith, right? You, you know how that goes. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What a fantastic psalm of God's provision. Verse 5 says, 
He prepares for me a table in the presence of my enemies. Normally, we would interpret that to mean that God has protected me, and even in the presence of my enemies, I'm safe, and I'm in control, and God has provided for me, and nothing can harm me. Here, Jesus, I think we see a fulfillment of this in a very different way. Jesus is sitting, and a a table is prepared with food, and he's sitting in the presence of at least one enemy. And the rest are friends that will abandon him and prove themselves not to be the greatest of friends. The irony here is that they're having a Passover meal, probably a little bit early, but they're having a Passover meal. What's a Passover meal supposed to be? Do you know the, you know the story, I'm sure? In Egypt, God's people are slaves. God is ready to free them. A series of plagues have, uh, have hindered the Pharaoh, and finally there's going to be a final plague, the death of the firstborn of every male Uh, living thing in all of Egypt, except for those people, except for those families that have the blood of an innocent lamb covering their doorposts, the angel of the Lord will pass over those homes and keep them safe. And it is that event that will lead to the freedom of God's people. And so year after year, for over 1,400 years, God's people by that point had celebrated this Passover meal, that God in His mercy had passed over our families and He brought us freedom. God passes over our, us in, in judgment. God has not judged us, yet God has made us free. That is a Passover meal. A Passover meal is supposed to be a time of celebration. It's supposed to be a time of, of freedom. It's supposed to be a time of victory. It's supposed to be a time where we look upon God and we say, thank you, God, for providing us with all of the freedom and the ability to worship you that we've been given. Thank you, God. And here's this Passover meal. And Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And this Passover meal all of a sudden takes on a, a mood of gloominess. Because now, just as God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, now one of the people in that room will deliver the Son of Man over to some Jewish leaders and some Gentile government officials, and they will crucify him. The irony on top of that is that it is through the death of Jesus Christ that we experience the true Passover, that we experience a Passover of our sins. We experience the freedom from sin, deliverance from bondage into freedom in Christ. And so we have the true benefit of God's Passover. Jesus was betrayed and crucified and raised to life so that we could become God's people and we could experience deliverance from sin. In verse 20, Jesus responds after they all ask, Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? He said to them in verse 20, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. When you've got 13 people sitting at a table, they're all sitting on the floor. 
as was the custom. Sitting at a, at a table here, there's, there's hardly room. Everybody can squeeze in. But the one who was dipping his bread into the same bowl had to be someone sitting very close to Jesus. And we know it was Judas Iscariot. Here's Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, sitting close to our Lord, dipping into the same bowl, dipping his bread into the same bowl. In a fulfillment of Psalm 41, verse 9, which says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus says in verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Some people have suggested that Judas's betrayal of Jesus obviously fulfilled Scripture, fulfilled the Old Testament. And that the logical conclusion they come to is that, well, Judas, he, he didn't have a choice. He was sort of a pawn in God's plan. He didn't really have a choice but to, re, to reject and to abandon and even to betray the Lord Jesus. And they go so far as to say, Judas, Judas shouldn't be held accountable for his actions. Not if it was all set up and predetermined beforehand. He didn't really even have a choice. But listen, that's a wrong understanding of what happened. You see, Scripture's prophecies are not fulfilled by robots. Scripture's prophecies are fulfilled by free men, free people. And if, from time to time, prophetic insight is given to the human writers of Scripture as to what will happen, it does not negate Judas's evil, free actions any more than it would negate Jesus' good, free actions. You cannot say that Jesus fulfilled Scripture out of His obedience and somehow had a choice in the matter and somehow was free to do that and then say, well, Judas, he was just sort of long for the ride. We shouldn't really hold him accountable. In fact, Jesus says just the opposite. He says that it is a fact that Judas will be held accountable. It would be better for him to have not even been born. Jesus, the fact that Jesus said that Judas would be judged should indicate something very critical to us. There are no excuses. There are no excuses. If Judas didn't have an excuse, even fulfilling Scripture, then you and I have no excuses. The devil made me do it. No. The devil didn't make you do it. Absolutely wrong. Hey, God made me this way, so it must be okay. You hear that a lot. No, that's wrong too. You see, regardless of any kind of biological disposition you might have towards some type of behavior, regardless of any kind of upbringing that you were raised in a certain way, regardless of the influence of others who are currently in your life who try to get you to sin, get you to do bad things, regardless of any of that, we will be held accountable for the choices that we make. The only solution, since we're all guilty already, is to cry out for God's mercy, to cry out for God's goodness and the relief from His wrath and the forgiveness that we can have through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only solution that we have. Any other kind of excuse? Can you imagine standing before God at the final judgment and saying, God, you made me this way? God knows better, and so will you that day. Can you imagine standing before God and saying, the devil made me do it? God won't hear that. 
He won't have any of it. There are no excuses when we stand before God. We will stand before God completely exposed. And the truth will rise that day to the level that we will have all of our blinders taken off and we will understand. We will absolutely understand how guilty we are before the Lord. The time to make right with the judge is now. Today. Today can be the day of salvation. You cannot wait. You cannot wait until that final day. It'll be too late. And so Jesus explains how this one man will betray him. And then, after they, or as they are partaking in the Passover meal, Jesus creates a new dynamic, the Lord's Supper. He creates the Lord's Supper, a practice that we continue with to this day. And I hope that you'll be able to see why. In verse 22, we read, And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The Lord's Supper is very important. When we partake of it, it's a very serious and somber, it's a celebratory thing. But it's a very important thing that we uh, do when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Why? Why is it so important? When I was a kid, I didn't understand why it was so important. It's just weird going to church. I understand the, the singing and the I understand the preaching and the teaching and Sunday school. I understand all those things, but every so often, you know, we have that piece of bread and that little bit of juice, and that's not supposed to fill me up, is it? You know, and, and it doesn't taste good, and I, don't, I don't, really don't get it. Why is it so important? One of the reasons it's important is because of what we read in verse 22. As they were eating, he took a loaf of bread. First, he blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Why is that important? The disciples received blessed bread. I'm going to rephrase it. The disciples received a blessing. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, if we don't receive the bread, then we're saying to the Lord, that we don't care for his blessing. We don't care for the blessings that come along with partaking of the Lord's Supper. The Lord, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is a sign that we are God's people, that we have willingly received the blessing of salvation from Jesus Christ. And if we say, as those who claim to be believers, we're not going to partake of the Lord's Supper, we are telling the Lord we want no part of what you've done on the cross. That's a serious thing. But when we partake of the Lord's Supper and we willingly receive the blessed bread, we are saying to the Lord, yes, I want to be a part of your family. I want to be a part of this congregation. I want to be a part of your saving purposes. 
It is so important that we partake of the Lord's Supper. The same is true of the drink. Jesus gave thanks for the drink, passed it out, and God's people, the disciples, received the drink. And so, what did Jesus say about the bread? It's my body. What did he say about the blood or about the, about the drink? This is my blood for the new covenant. You see, the Lord's Supper is not just about eating a cracker and drinking some juice. It's not about going through some ritual that we do every so often. Through it, we are reminded that God has a new relationship with his people, a new covenant. It brings up this question. Why would Jesus willingly go into Jerusalem on a direct path to this house, which likely was within a stone's throw of Caiaphas, the high priest's house, and partake in the Lord's Supper, institute the Lord's Supper. Why would Jesus go on a direct path to the cross? It is because he believed that his death on the cross would accomplish the creation of a new covenant between God and man. There's going to be a new way for man to relate to God. And it can only happen by me dying on a cross. And he died on that cross for us. You see, the trust that Jesus had in his heavenly Father was so powerful that when he distributed the bread and distributed the juice, he was distributing the benefits of his death before he ever died. What an incredible faith Jesus had in his heavenly Father. And see, the Lord's Supper doesn't just look to the past. It's, it is a reminder that Jesus died on a cross so many years ago. But it's more than that. The Lord's Supper also looks to the future. It looks to the day when we will sit down at the Messianic banquet, the great uh, meal that we'll have in the very presence of our God and our Savior. Jesus said in verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the, fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new. In the kingdom of God. See, Scripture tells us there's coming a day when we're going to have a great feast, a great meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all of God's people from all of time will sit, sit down together with the Son, and we will celebrate all that He has done for us. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we look forward to that day, too. What was the final thing the disciples did? Verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. At the end of a Passover meal in ancient days, and even today at Orthodox Jewish families, when they have their Passover meal, there's a grouping of Hallel psalms. It means praise songs. When we talk about hallelujah, it means praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. And there's a grouping of Hallel songs, and there's about four of them. Psalm 115, 116, 117, and 118. That the family will sing together after they partake of the Passover meal. I want to read to you Psalm 118. 
Because this, I believe, was that part of that hymn that the disciples sang as they made their way out of the house and they made their way toward the Mount of Olives. It reads, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look and triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the of the Lord exalts, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. I believe that Jesus said those words, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever as he made his way to the Mount of Olives, where he would be arrested. What incredible faith our Savior had in his Heavenly Father. When you and I go through difficult times, when we suffer and we don't understand why, could you and I even perhaps have a portion of that kind of faith and simply trust in the Father and in his plans? to make all things right.